So we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, and we're in the second half of Ephesians 4. And as Israel laid out last week, it's helpful to remember that Ephesians is divided into two halves, roughly, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And they can be described in a myriad of ways, like the the first half is is about doctrine, the second half is about devotion, or as uh, the great evangelical J.I. Packer said, the first half is about the truths to live by, and the second half, how to live by them. But I think there's something deeper actually happening here. In the first half, it's as if Jesus, it's as if Paul wants to take us to the mountain heights and show us just how vast the view is of, of what God has done for us in Christ. He almost, in a sense, wants to overwhelm our senses with the, with the depths uh, of the grace that, and the love that God has lavished upon us. I like to think of it as like Paul, by the end of the first three chapters, wants us to see our lives as like we're sailboats afloat the, the vast ocean of God's grace. So that when we come to all the exhortations and the, and the challenges and the commands of, of chapters 4 through 6, we see them as something that is, that is liberating, something that is, that is life-giving, something that is wholesome and true and fully human. And as Paul comes into chapter 4, he first talks about what it looks like for us to live out the gospel in community, holding diversity in unity and maturity. Israel spoke to that last week. And second, this week, what we're getting into is Paul reminds us of our personal identity. And then he asks the question, what sort of lifestyle reflects who we have become in Christ? And he gives us some really concrete examples of that. So basically, he reminds us of our gospel-shaped identity, and then he tells us what the gospel-shaped life looks like that flows out of that identity. So first, let's look at the identity. It's it's in verses uh, 17 to 24. And and here, when Paul talks about identity, he's tapping into something that he already raised in chapter 2. He said, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you walked. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. He raised you up with him. He seated you at the right hand with him of the Father. And so you are united with Christ. And then he says in chapter 10, in verse 2 of chapter 10, for you are his workmanship, his artistry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. And that language of walking shows up. And throughout the letter, it's just this image of of the daily rhythms and routines that make up your life and form you into the sort of person that you are and express the sort of person that you are. And it's this theme of walking that Paul uses the same verb some five times in chapters four and five, because he wants us to know that all the exhortations of chapters four and five are flowing out of the fact that God has made us a new creation already. So verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer live. The word is actually that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then Paul drives home the point in verses 18 to 19. He speaks of like, the futility and the darkness and the alienation and the ignorance and the hardness and the greed and the impurity that makes up this way of life. And it's a pretty devastating description. But, but the point for Paul is that your way of life should be different from this precisely because your identity is different from theirs. 
Verse 20, this is not the way you learned Christ. But verse 22, in him you were taught to put off your old self. And then verse 24, to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that YouTube video where um, someone goes to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist asks the person, like, so what's the issue that you want to discuss today? And they start pouring out their hearts, and after about 30 seconds, the psychiatrist just said, let me cut this short and cut to the chase. Just stop it. And then, and then the person just keeps going a little bit and starts sharing their emotions. Well, actually, I feel really anxious, and he goes, let's just cut to the chase. Just stop it. And it's, it's this kind of abrupt <laughs> YouTube video, and it's supposed to be a joke. It's supposed to be a parody. But often I think that's how we treat the sin and the issues in our lives <laughs> and in other people's lives. Even if we don't directly say it, sometimes we're underneath, we're thinking it. Just stop it, can't you? But that's not what Paul does here. Paul doesn't just say to stop it. He says, remember who you are. It's, it's that classic question that Jean Valjean asks, right? Who am I? Who am I really? How do I discover it? How do I grow into it? What does it mean to become fully human? And it's that age-old identity question that has been, that has been sought after throughout the ages. Like, like in the ancient world, the, the idea that you were a citizen of a nation or of a polis was something that tapped into most deeply who you are. You, your truest self is the self that has a particular role in a larger community. Now, this got flipped in its head in kind of modern understandings of the self. So autonomy and freedom became central. Your truest self is your self that is freed from all constraint and that has all possibility at your fingertips. And then this got made more extreme in kind of the postmodern self, where fluidity and creativity is key. Your truest self is whoever you decide you want to make yourself to be at any given moment and time. It sounds really liberating, but it actually ends up causing a lot of anxiety. And there, there's a couple examples of this that I think you can see in our culture. Um, one of the best examples is the song Let It Go that's sung by Queen Elsa in, in the, the movie The Frozen. Do you guys know what I'm talking about here? You guys could probably sing this with me, right? Like, let it go, let it go, can't hold, yeah, that whole thing. Well, it starts off with this really interesting way. Just let me read the lyrics. She says, the snow Glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. And then she goes on and talks about this experience of having everybody's expectations on her, like what she should be like and, and what she should become and the responsibilities that she has to bear in her life, and she just can't handle it anymore. This isn't who she is, and she just cries out, let it go, let it go, I'm not holding back anymore. And then she says, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and to break through. And here it is, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. In a sense, I think that kind of gets us to some of the heartbeat of 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 kind of where our culture is a little bit in terms of what it means to actually form one's identity. 
And, and the note here is really triumphant. It's really hopeful. It's like if we shed these things and these expectations, then we'll be free to discover our true selves. But I think underlying, there's like an underbelly to this kind of narrative that's a little less hopeful in some respects. And maybe a good example of this is the book turned movie Into the Wild. Anybody familiar with that one, Into the Wild? And so there's this, this young man who grows up in like an upper middle class, white suburban neighborhood, and he's living the American dream. I mean, he has everything he wants at his fingertips. And his parents are saying to him, look, you've got to work hard. You've got to go to a good college, preferably Ivy League, and then you'll get a good paying job, and you can have the life that we've given you, and we'll continue. And eventually, by his late teens, he becomes totally disenchanted with this because he's having a tough time seeing the meaning in all. So he decides, actually, I'm going to forego college. I'm going to embark on a journey of self-discovery. And he goes out into the forest to live by himself. Note how true self-discovery is found in isolation here in this story. And just as he's starting to realize, we have journal entries, he's just starting to realize, actually, this isolation stuff may not be all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> Maybe we're made for community. Maybe that's part of our identity. He has the misfortune of misidentifying some wild berries that are actually really poisonous. He eats them, and they kill him, and he dies alone. And so these two stories are both ex exploring this sense of like our true self and, and our true identity is found as we leave the shackles of what we've inherited and, and, and chart our own course in, in, in freedom and, and in self-determination and on the one hand, there's this note of triumph and hope that is in our culture over that. This could really lead to true human flourishing. And then on the other hand, there's all this, also this underbelly of despair. Is it really all it's cracked up to be? And I think one of the things that you see in common from both of these things is that to be truly human is to be free from something. But there's very vague notion what it is that we're free for. And the Christian identity that Paul unpacks for us throughout Ephesians is, is not primarily a freedom for, from, but it's a freedom for union with Christ. Union with Christ, our life bound up with his, our identity found in him, and, and particularly the way in which his death and resurrection unfolds itself in its, in its healing and in its, its glorifying and in its sanctifying power in our lives. And so Paul uses this image of a change of clothing in verses 22 and 24 to signify this change of identity that Christ has brought about in our lives. Notice verse 22, it's the death of Christ in us, put off your old self. And then verse 24, it's the resurrection of Christ in us, put on your new self. And this new self is not something that we're given to create. <laughs> it's something that is created after the likeness of God that we receive, that we get to grow into. Now, the key means that Paul gives us for how we grow into this new identity is given in verse 23, sandwiched between the put on, put off. It's by the renewing of your mind. And, and here, I think Paul means not only like renew newness in what you know and, and in how you think, but, but newness in, in who you are. Newness in the way that you view God and view yourself and view the world around you. Maybe you can think of like the restoration of the Sistine Chapel. This, this, this beautiful image that was painted that has been 
hidden and almost in a sense um, clouded by, by, by years of soot that have, that have gathered on it. And as those people restore it and take away layer after layer of soot, it restores to its original likeness. It's being renewed. Paul brings this up in Romans 12. He says, do not be transformed. I mean, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And one of the practical questions for me is like, well, how are our minds renewed? And, and what graces has God given us for this transformation? And really briefly, I think this is where some of the other lectionary readings are actually quite helpful for us because they mirror this put off and put on. Uh, Mark chapter 9, it's the renewing of our minds through cutting out what dims and darkens them. So notice how Paul, I mean, Jesus speaks in some serious words here. <laughs> I mean, uh, cut off your hand, uh, uh, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye, and I think it's hyperbolic. I mean, some people in church history have literally done, cut members of their bodies off. Um, that's probably not the way to go here. But what, what Jesus is inviting us to ask, and I think Paul is like, what, what is actually hindering me from full devotion and deep communion with and, and may God be inviting me to cut something out that is actually dimming and darkening my mind towards who Christ is and who I am in him. Maybe distracting me from that reality. And then Psalm 19 picks up on what Paul says of like put on. It's renewing of our minds through feasting on what enlightens us. And here he just, you know, the psalm just talks about scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul, making wise the simple, giving joy to the heart. It's this sense that the simple words of Scripture actually enlighten us in our world. And it's through this kind of fasting and feasting, in a sense, that we come to a broader and deeper understanding of who God has made us to be, of our gospel-shaped identity. And then Paul says, it's only when you are clear on who you really are that then I want you to understand how I want that, that should be expressed in your life, your gospel-shaped life. And so the question of verses 25 to 32 is like, uh, what sorts of ways of speaking and relating and living and feeling are appropriate to my new identity in Christ? I like the way Eugene Peterson says it. It's, it's as if, he said, Paul is saying, you've been made alive in Christ, you've been raised with him, so now practice your resurrection. So this is what he says. There's a few ways. He says, first, practice your resurrection in your speech. Practice your resurrection in your speech. Like the way we use words really matters. Words have the power to connect us or divide us, to, to build up or to tear down, to, to bless or to curse, to heal or to wound. And Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ encourages a wholesome way of speaking that compromises neither truth nor grace. And you get both here. Verse 25, truth. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, speak the truth fully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Notice how speaking the truth is connected to community. And then in verse 29, uh, speaking gracefully is connected to community as well. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word for unwholesome is a word for rotten fruit. 
something that tastes horrible, leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But, but speak only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit. The language here is that it may give grace to those who listen. And, and so Paul is saying that when our minds are renewed in the image of Christ, the result will be mouths who speak truth and grace together, never apart. Now, every one of us has a tendency to kind of err on one side or the other, truth or grace. <laughs> depending on your Myers-Briggs, are you a thinker, or are you a feeler? Depending on your Enneagram, are you a challenger, are you a peacemaker, you know, these sorts of things. And I'll let all you spiritual directors tease that out a little further. And we could even make like a grid if we wanted to for relationships um, over this. Um, you know, you have your y-axis, which is grace, and your, your x-axis, which is truth. And, and you could talk about like if you're high grace but low truth, then in relationships you tend to just hang out with one another and never address the issues. If you're high grace and low truth. But if, if you're low grace and and your low truth, then you just check out. You kind of avoid each other and avoid, avoid the issues. But if, if you're high truth and you're low grace, then you just call each other out. <laughs> and, and you kind of butt heads over the issues all the time. But if you're high grace and you're high truth, then what you see is that, that there's actually a primary call into the kingdom of God for both of you. There's full of grace and full of truth. You see, in our world, I think we could tease this out in a number of relationships, like high truth and low grace, and there's countless stories of the pain and the hurt and the misunderstanding that causes. But, but high grace and low truth, and there's countless stories of the confusion that that causes. See, Jesus is somebody who, Gospel of John says, when we beheld his glory, his glory was of a particular type that was full of grace and truth. And Paul is saying, I want you to become a people who are transformed into his image. And so that in the way you speak, it reflects that fullness of grace and that fullness of truth all the time. And I think, you know, this is increasingly important for us. In our prayers that we're going to pray later on intercession, I included... Um, prayers from the book of from the BCP, our Anglican prayer book, that are for those who write words that many read, and for those who speak words to which many listen. Because it's it's recognizing the power of our words, and in a world of social media where anonymity is all over the place, it's for it's hard. It can be easy for us to lose the significance, as, as James said, that a word can be like a spark that sets a forest on fire. And so a really simple question, I think, for us is just simply to ask ourselves, like, are we better off? Because is somebody better off because they've had a conversation with me? <laughs> is somebody better off because they're my friend on Facebook? Is somebody better off because they follow me on Twitter or because I sent that email? Have they experienced grace and truth together? So that's the first thing. Paul says, like, practice your resurrection in your speech. And the second thing is practice your resurrection in your emotions, actually, in your emotions, because that's so often underneath the way we relate to each other. So we get this in verses 26 and 27. 
Paul says that uh, Christian transformation involves Jesus changing the way that we deal with the emotion of anger. And once again, a lot of you could probably talk about anger for a while. Anger tends to be a bit of a secondary emotion. Often underneath it is a primary emotion of fear or not feeling safe or, or feeling hurt or betrayed or you name it. And, and either we lash out in anger to control the situation or we withdraw in anger to protect ourselves. And there's a myriad of ways in which this takes place in our lives. And Paul understands that, that this is so much under the dynamic of how we relate to one another. And especially after the last 18 months, I would say a culture of anger is something that's prevalent. And so Paul says in verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. In other words, Paul says there is such a thing as non-sinful anger, being angry in good and just ways. But, but Paul says be careful lest that good and just anger actually lead you into sin. And I think it's helpful here to, to know that Paul's actually quoting, he's echoing Psalm 4 verse 4. And in that psalm, David is praying as, as he, before he goes to bed at night. And, and David's reflecting on his day, and what's on his heart as he goes to bed is he's troubled by how the world loves vain words and how it propagates lies. And it makes him feel unsafe in the world. It, it does not give him peace. And, and, and when David is praying in the middle of the psalm, it's as if God speaks to David in the middle of his prayer and says, David, instead of lashing out and taking control, I invite you to be silent. Trust me. And then he says, instead of fretting and fearing at night, I, I invite you to go to sleep, knowing that I make you dwell in safety. Solomon once said, there's a season for everything, a time for speaking and a time for silence. I think Paul's saying sometimes when we're angry, we need to just learn to keep silent. But Paul balances that though, right? Because the very next thing he says is he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in other words, there's certain forms of anger that, that actually we need to make sure that we don't nurse anger lest it settles into some form of resentment. And interestingly, the second time Paul uses the word anger, it's a different Greek word for anger. It's, it's not a word that means just something that flares up and goes away as quickly as it flares up, like lighting a match, for example, that sort of anger. He's talking about a, a sort of anger that begins with a temporary passion, but over time becomes a prolonged posture of the heart. Irritability that becomes resentment, sometimes downright bitterness. And Paul knows how detrimental this can be, this emotional network can be in our relationships. And, and he says, give no opportunity to the devil because he knows that the devil loves to be close to those that are in that place because it can wreak all sorts of havoc. And, and that's why he goes on in um, verse 30 to say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And he says in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, which is underneath all the rage and the anger, which is underneath all the brawling and the slander and the clamor and every form of malice. So, so Paul is saying, practice your resurrection in your speech, but, but in order to do that, you're actually going to need to practice your resurrection in, in your emotions. And notice how he puts, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, right in the mix. 
like Paul sees the stuff of speech, the way of words, and the stuff of relationships and emotions as deeply spiritual formation matters. And then third and finally, Paul says, practice your resurrection in your work. Verse 18. Uh, sorry, not 18, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. I think this is a really interesting thing. If I were Paul, I would not have put this right here. <laughs> it, it, it feels very random. I, I, I would have put it somewhere else or given it its own paragraph, but it shows up right in the middle but I think one of the things that it displays for us is this weird calculus or economy of grace and the gospel. That the sort of transformation that happens in us when we come to understand our identity in Christ is not a transformation where we just stop doing bad things. We stop speaking evil words. We, we stop stealing. We stop uh, allowing anger to settle into resentment towards other people. But it's something far more positive than that. It's something where we grow into people who are positively generous, far beyond the ways that our circumstances and situations actually call for. And I think this is part of the reason why, um, part of what it means for us to be made in the likeness of God. I mean, who is God? God is not just the absence of all evil, as if saying that is enough. God is the fullness of all good. And then he uses that good to lavish us in generosity. And so that's why Paul says here to the one who is stealing, who, who is taking from the community and leeching off of it instead of supporting and contributing to it. He says, look, you've got to stop stealing and you've got to do work to support yourself and let it be honorable work. But even more than that, I want you to be generous with what you make in your work to supply those to the needs of those who don't have enough. Dennis was saying in, in just now, he said, there's two different types of vows of poverty in, in the Catholic Church. There's the Franciscans who have the vow of, like, you give everything away is the vow of poverty. But then there's the Benedictines, and they say, you don't give everything away. You just share everything you have. And I think that's a little bit of, of what Paul's getting at here. He's saying when we come to understand the extravagance of the love that God has poured out in us, on us in Christ, then there is this transformation in us that we bear the image of God in the way we are generous towards other people. And that is seen nowhere more clearly. The forgiveness we extend to those who hurt us. Verse 32. Paul brings us all the way back to the gospel. Be kind, compassionate. That word compassionate is the same word that's used to describe the father in the parable of the prodigal son. His compassion and he embraces the son when he comes back. Forgiving each other, verse 32, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's as if Paul imagines that we become little sacraments, if I can use that language little sacraments of the grace that we ourselves have received from God. Christ is the source and he is the shape of our forgiveness. 
We forgive others because we know we have been forgiven much. We give what we have first received from the Lord, and in giving, we we actually come to a deeper understanding of what we have received. And so Paul says it's in this way, it's through a gospel-shaped identity that I'm encouraging you, my brothers and sisters, live a gospel-shaped life, because that is the truly human life. So my prayer for us is, is, Lord, this week, would you make that so for us? Would you help us practice our resurrection? I speak these things to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.